this case file, the theorists are joined by published author Bruce Fenton. In his latest book, he has compiled evidence and arguments for the idea that humans were not solely products of random genetic mutations, but our evolution was aided and guided by the intervention of a wholly alien race. His work builds an impressive narrative that, based on the evidence he has gathered, spans the galaxy and claims to reveal the true origins of the human race. Join us as we explore the fascinating pieces of this mystery that lay within our planet's geologic past, its sacred artifacts and stories from around the world, and the riddles that lay within our very own genetic code with Bruce Fenton from his new book, Exogenesis, Human Hybrids. Welcome to Alien Theorist Theorizing, Case File 148, Exogenesis, with Bruce Fenton. I'm Braden. I'm Zell. I'm Dan. And I'm Andrew. All right, tonight we have a very special guest, Bruce Fenton. He is an ancient mysteries researcher and author of not only Exogenesis, but also Forgotten Exodus and founder of AncientNews.net. He's a world traveler, public speaker, and his research activities have featured in the UK's Telegraph newspaper and has headed an expedition into the Caucasus Mountains in search of giant bones with a team from Science Channel. He has appeared on Coast to Coast, Ancient Aliens, numerous other podcasts, and tonight let's welcome him to our show, Bruce Fenton, everybody. Thank you very much. Uh, pleasure to be here. Yeah, I look forward to, look forward to a good chat. Hey, appreciate you coming on so uh so early in the morning for you, we know the time difference is a pain, but Bruce is, it's 3.30 in the morning for Bruce and he's, he's up smashing coffee, ready to go. So we're definitely having, we're definitely having to be here. Uh, we're talking about your new book, uh, that just recently came out, Exogenesis Human Hybrids, right in our, up our alley. Um, so your book outlines a lot of theories about our connections to, um, our origins really about where we come from as a, a, a as a race, um, as uh, biological entities, um, you know, where we're coming from, even where we're going. And uh, I know I had a great time reading it. It's it's a lot of really cool stuff. You've put a lot of work into it. And um, it, it it is really great to read because it kind of takes you everywhere. Like you cover yeah. so many theories and so many things, uh, so many topics that people are are you know, worth talking about things that have been in the news recently, uh, things that are definitely being explored even now, and even some mysteries that still have been around for, you know, at least like a hundred years. Uh, and we haven't sufficiently explored yet. And just, there's so much cool stuff in there. Um, I know, uh, I definitely want to ask you about, um, one of the parts of your book that you talked about, you talked about these, this ge the geologic mystery that is tektites. The Australasian tektites. I know um, a lot of it. Can, can you explain a little bit what tektites are? I know I was I was fascinated by that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's become, become one of my favorite topics, to be honest. I mean, um, for reasons we can go into. But yeah, essentially, they are glasses, like, ge like geological glasses that are made from uh, 
largely silica, obviously, but then they have other compounds in them, ranges of metals, and um, particularly the ones we're talking about have quite a lot of aluminium, they have titanium, they have um, you know a few other compounds all melted into these kind of very homogenous glasses, and they're only found at, well, the, the type we're talking about are only found at four locations on Earth. There's four tektite strewn fields, which are large, uh, fairly homogenous collations of material from singular events, uh, usually posited to be some kind of extraterrestrial impact events. Uh, and so we, you know, I focus particularly on the Australite tektite stream field, but there's four of them around the world. And we can go into why this one's different, of course. But yeah, that's essentially what they are. So why is this, why is this crash site different than the other three? What's special about this one? Why does this one have your attention? Sure. Well, the, the first thing that will stand out to anyone that looks into this is that um, the fourth site, this Australite tektite strewn field, is just humongous. You know, it's really off the scale compared to the other three. Uh, it stretches all the way from Antarctica up to sort of southern China, and obviously out to uh, either side of that, quite you know far into the oceans. You know, it's, it's absolutely enormous. It covers around about 20 to 30% of the Earth's surface. Now, if anyone checks out the maps of tectite strewn fields, you, you quickly notice the other three are nowhere near that kind of scale, that there's, there's something else happening here. And, and the others look very much like they are the results of some kind of impact. You know, you can see the kind of um, shaping to the strewn field that you'd expect for ejecta from an object hitting. Right. But that's quite unlike the Australite tectite strewn field. Um, it also has a unique one unique form of tectite called the tectite button. And again, they only find that once in the history of the planet in the Australite tectite strewn field. And this is small pieces that look almost like the nose cone of a rocket ship. Um, and they're found exclusively across Southern Australia out of this entire strewn field, only across Southern Australia. Um, and those are shaped by entry from space. And, and, and that's been sort of conclusively argued by you know a number of NASA studies and other studies that, that this is unique. Uh, we don't see that in any of those strewn fields. Right. And now is this like, because in your book you mentioned about, because the main, like the main mainstream theory about human evolution is out of Africa, right? And then you seem to go into your book of actually maybe there is evidence that humanity may have started actually in Australia. Does this have something to do with that? Yeah, I mean, t to some degree, I suppose you've got to look at when do you consider the beginning of the human story to actually, you know, occur. Um, if, if you want to go to the very earliest uh, hominins and you know, the very earliest, I guess, somewhat recognizable uh, forms within our human family, then those either appear in Africa or possibly in the Mediterranean, just beyond Africa. And that's a few slightly controversial finds that have occurred um, down in well, parts, parts of Greece and um, Bulgaria. There's a few. So, I mean, again, if you then, if you want to instead start with the Homo genus and really the Homo erectus, which are the first recognizable, I mean, we would totally recognize, you know, as humans. Um, if you were to see one on the bus, I mean, you wouldn't want to sit next to them, but yeah. you would, you know, you would know that it was a, a human being, not... Uh, kind of an ape man, right? Then those appear about two million years ago and seem, again, seem to emerge first in Africa. 
Now, if you go to Homo sapiens, which I think most of us are the most familiar with, you know, yep. being the only ones that currently live on the planet, uh, in my argument, and not my argument alone, they appear around about 800,000 years ago. And I argue that they appear in Australia. So again, it all depends on when you're starting right. in your mind, you know, the human story and what you count as the beginning of that story, or at least the most important parts of that story, right? Um, so I do rewrite that. I say that, no, that's that's occurring down in Australasia. And indeed that the populating of Eurasia, um, I argue that that also is an out of Australia story around about 55,000 years ago. Uh, with a populating, you know, moving out across East Asia and eventually to Europe uh, and even to North Africa. So, yeah, I mean, I, I totally argue against the conventional model, really. But um, you could say that's a related but somewhat aside to the core arguments in this book. So, like, do we know, like, has the, the chemical data been analyzed of these tectites? Like, do we know exactly, like, do we have anything else mm -hmm. like it on Earth? Yeah, it's been well analyzed, actually. There's been quite a lot of studies. I think, in fact, hundreds of papers have been written. Um, and the reason for this is we have a mystery that stretches back. Uh, well, the tectite itself is 780,000 years old. But, I mean, the mystery kind of stretches back about 100 years in terms of the scientific investigation. Uh, the initial thinking was that perhaps it was the result of, well, even at one point, human, you know, human-created glasses were considered kind of dismissed. Um, and then there was, you know, some thoughts of whether or not they could be volcanic glasses uh, that was also, you know, considered and dismissed. Uh, and eventually we ended up with two camps of scientists, one that was arguing that they were the result of a fairly, you know, conventional asteroid impact, but, you know, obviously unusually powerful one to try and explain how material could be thrown up into the atmosphere, well, beyond the atmosphere, but also through the atmosphere all the way down to Antarctica from southern China, which, you know, when you sort of look at the map, you just look at that and yeah, you think that's an astonishing claim, you know, that an impact could do that. It's just, it's just kind of mind boggling anyway. But um, then you had on the other side of this, a group of scientists that were saying that, no, that perhaps this was lunar ejector from an object striking the surface of the moon, breaking off, you know, melting some pieces, breaking off a whole swarm of debris chunks and that these flew through space and then rained down across the earth. Uh, that argument has gone on for years and years and years. Relatively recently, the lunar camp kind of, I mean, I would say kind of lost the argument. And that was because material from the moon was, you know, better analyzed. You know, we have, you know, equipment has been you know, moving along. We're able to kind of analyze the surface of the moon somewhat better. Um, and they determined that this- All cheese. <laughs> yeah, there was mostly because these aren't cheese. You, it, it was kind of along those lines. Basically, it didn't match. Yeah. The surface of the moon didn't seem to chemically match the Australite like, content, right? So in a way, they sort of lost by by that consideration, which meant that the other theory became the default, you know, accepted consensus. So I would say it didn't win on any particularly compelling evidence grounds it's just that their opponents lost and they became the default consensus theory this impact model right right um the reason why this argument had gone on so long is because neither side could fully explain the evidence um and were left with anomalies right and so one side could better explain some aspects and the other team you know could could explain other parts of this but neither could outright win the argument so we're in this situation now where uh, what i would say is a flawed argument has become the 
consensus model by that default. And I provide obviously a, quite a different interpretation. And we can, I can go into a little bit why why they're wrong and why I'm right. Let's hear it. Yeah, no, please do. That's exactly what we're here for. Us. I will add this really quickly, though. A lot of your theory to me weighs on a single point, which some of our fans disagree with. That is, Australia even exists. So, <laughs> right? We haven't even proven that yet for some of our audience. So, you know, you're already behind the eight ball with a lot of this stuff because <laughs> of the whether or not Australia is actually South Africa. Who knows? <laughs> right? So. Also, if it's a flat Earth, you have a problem because this has to do with orbiting objects. Yeah. So, yeah, we run into so a lot of yeah. problems there. That 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 direction. So it's, it's going to be difficult people. So if you if you believe that it's all a hologram, or there's all sorts of things, if you have yeah. a perspective on, but you may not agree with any of this. Um, but it's really if you, if you look at the the chemical composition, what they found is a few things. First of all, that this material is very homogenous in that if you take any two pieces of australite, they're pretty much the same. When you go to the chemical level, you know, they're, they're very, very close, um, what they call homogenous. You know, they appear to be very much the same. Now, that's kind of interesting because if something impacts, what you tend to have is, you know, at the, at the core of the impact site, you get this totally melted glass. But you can imagine at the edges, you have partial melt where you have pieces of rock which have, you know, some glass and also some of the original rock remaining. Um, and sometimes you'll have pieces that, you know, let's say from um, an object impacted and it hits an area where you've got sandstone, granite, um, you know, flint, whatever, you know, there's different rocks in that area. Then you will have glass that has different chemical components, right? So from, you know, the east side of the impact site might produce glasses that are different to the west side. Okay, um, so that's another issue you have. So with tectites, with these australite tectites, you don't see that. You see really homogeneous material. You don't find any that is partly melted rock, right? And that's that doesn't stack up well with an impact site. You really should have that. The other thing is that you don't find a lot of bubbles in the glass, and that's another issue because when you have these impacts, usually the glass has a lot of bubbles in it. Okay. Uh, when you make glass for a, you know, like for a bottle. You don't have a lot of bubbles in that, you know, typically none, you know, or very few, right? Because we heat it over time and there's a certain, there's a law, something called Moses law, which is to do with glasses. And if you, if you heat them over time, you know, you, we sort of process them, that removes the bubbles and also makes it very homogenous. But in a singular impact, when you have one moment of heat and energy, you know, that doesn't tend to happen, right? You get all these bubbles. So why is it the Australite tectite? is so homogenous and has no bubbles. Again, that suggests it was a some what sustained heating event, right, rather than a singular moment. And you don't have any of these other, you know, uh, part melt pieces, which again, doesn't fit with an impact. So on the other flip side of it, why else we know this is from space is because not only do we have these tectite buttons, which are clearly shaped by coming in from outer space, but where we do find bubbles, they are of hard vacuum, not of atmosphere from Earth, right? So again, these are you know these are what you can consider quite clinchers in saying that you, we know that this has come from space. Um, NASA tried to replicate the forms, and they found that yeah, it only works if you have initial object which is in orbit, which is expl essentially explodes, is somehow superheated, and ends up with a debris field which carries on in a decaying orbit. And some of this material, bear in mind. So if you have liquefied silica object producing glass in space that, that liquid glass will form spheres 
and anyone who watches, you know, NASA videos of water flowing around in the yep. ship, you know, they, it forms yep. a sphere. That's, so those will cool immediately in vacuum of space. So you get these little glass spheres. They then would have had to have broken atmosphere at a fairly shallow angle, moving somewhat slowly to allow for this secondary melting. So as it came in, it, the front melts, becomes liquid, the liquid runs to the back, and you end up with these kind of nose cone shapes, which are obviously aerodynamically shaped. And that's the only way they form. Now, if you consider a meteorite coming in, right, normally they come in at, at tremendous speeds and at fairly steep angles. And as they pass through the atmosphere within, you know, split seconds, or they they superheat and the outside of them evaporates. They don't really melt. You have very little liquid. They actually evaporate from the outside. And the middle remains quite cool because of the speed we're dealing with. Right. right? So th this is quite unlike that. We never see these, these shapes on asteroids and you know other impactors coming in. So they know these came in quite slow at a shallow angle, like a decaying orbit, right? And then they rained down specifically across Southern Australia. The rest of the debris field is different. It has, sphere, uh, sorry, has um, uh, teardrop shapes, dumbbells and other shapes, right? But not these buttons, they're only Southern Australia, right? Although we know it's a singular debris field. So there's, there's something odd there as well. Like tectites are amazing. And um, I, it, getting back to like the title of your book, I know people are going to be uh, wondering probably right now, like, why are you guys just talking about rocks? <laughs> uh, while some of our fans will think it's super neat, um, I, how does it how does it exactly fit in with? Because I know it kind of kicks off your book with, with this with the tectites, which is super cool. And then how does that you know fit in with your overarching theory in your book that you posit? Yeah, that I'm arguing that these are signatures, these are techno-signatures, alien techno-signatures, because we have, in my argument, these are parts of a craft, a, a, silica, a large silica AI craft, what would be called a you know a vast silica network. And in fact, this is, if anyone wants to look, there's a, a really good paper called Alien Minds by Susan Snyder, which I, I refer to in the book. Um, and she points out that at the cutting edge of you know NASA thinking it's assumed that most alien civilizations will be either post-biological or will have vast silica superintelligences. You know, you can imagine a whole moon of silica, which is essentially a living computer with a hard AI on board, and that we may see those out there. And the fact they think these are the most likely kinds of advanced civilizations, because as, as a civilization creates robots and technologies and, you know, vast computing systems, that they will often, they believe, they will often transition to post-biological, like uploading the mind into silica networks or creating AI and robots, which will go out into space, explore for them. So it's assumed that probably the first thing we'd encounter from another civilization is one of these kind of silica explorers, probes or, you know, mobile, uh, giant super intelligent minds and that we might encounter. Well, now, funnily enough, of course, this is the signature. In my view, this is this absolute signature of one of these, a large silica object, 80% silica, that is orbiting our planet 780,000 years ago that somehow parks itself in orbit. Now, I didn't come to that just out of nowhere. And as you know from the book, I say that this information is transferred, that there is a, a different, a separate AI probe, in my view, it's probably what it is, an object which is recovered in Australia by some of the early uh, indigenous people there. Um, so particularly, um, I referred to the Ararente people, whose language group is around kind of Uluru and, and that area, that they have these stories of these objects called Chiringas, which they say were left here in the Al Chiringa time, the beginning time, the creation time, and that these small compact 
objects, which I expect to be silica. I've not had been able to analyze one up close. They're very sacred. You know, I don't have access to one. But they, they argue that these are alive and that these objects have been handed down through time. That the most sacred objects can communicate information and that are kept, you know, usually in a cave somewhere hidden away from the people. And only the high initiates, kind of the shamans, the clever fellas, will interact with these. But they, uh, this is what they said. They're alive. They transmit information. And it turns out someone um, who I've since had, you know, contact with, you know, wrote a book back in 2003, a lady called Valerie Barrow, saying that she had um, interaction with one of these. Uh, she was temporarily a custodian for one that was on its way back to the Arente people, um, was in the process of, someone else was in the process of trying to get it back to them. She was temporarily asked to look after it. And whilst it was in her home, she began having these strange voice-to-skull interactions um, with this voice telling her it was an Alcharinga being from this creation time and that there was a lost story of human engin- you know, engineering of humans and a ship, a vast crystal ship, arriving here. Uh, and this whole long narrative about it, the ship being destroyed, beings that survived engineering the first Homo sapiens um, and an impact event with asteroids being pulled in from out in the asteroid belt deliberately hitting the planet you know this really you know crazy kind of sounding story you know with right. like yeah it sounds very yeah. it's like straight out of science fiction yeah you know motherships yeah, cool. blown up in orbit beings coming down in their sources you know it's, just, it's definitely you know you make a great movie i mean it's make a great movie um but what i was thinking was well is it more than that is it more than the plot for a great movie you know is this potentially real and so i used my you know somewhat two decades of research skills, you know, honed on these topics over the years. But, well, you know, if there's any evidence out there, you know, perhaps I can find it and at least to some degree validate the story or, or show this wrong, in which case, you know, move on, do something else. You know, there's always other topics, right? So I did a bit of a deep dive and was shocked to find that I was able to find supporting evidence for the three biggest claims in that book, which were the arrival of this vast silica craft and its destruction in orbit, uh, the multi-directional impacts of, of Earth involving these asteroids, and the engineering of Homo sapiens, all, all going back to 780,000 years ago, three different events, major events, obviously, and they all the evidence I found all fitted well with a date at 780,000 years ago. So that, that's why these Australite tech types are important. I'm saying that these are the remnants of the ship that arrived here at that time. So this, the remnants of the ship giving rise to Homo sapiens out of Australia. So the, the crash of that ship, was it purposeful then? And that crash is what ended up sparking like the leap forward in humans or... No, it's it's not purposeful. It's actually, this is an ambush that the ship is destroyed by another party that is already on the planet, that already has bases on this planet. That this is part of a, a they're supposed to be a handover of the planet between two different alliances of beings that has been already been kind of uh, negotiated. But then there's a betrayal once the ship is in orbit and it's destroyed uh, and it's described as being destroyed by electromagnetic resonant weaponry. And so I say it entrains the ship and sort of superheats and melts it before it finally explodes, which is funny because then that meshes very well with this homogenous glass that we see, that it's in the same way that we create a glass. Yeah, every- it's undergone sustained right. energetic, you know, event. So this the the ET race that was already on Earth, mm-hmm. do you posit that they may have given rise to other versions of, of like, of uh, hominids, and then it was this newest yep. version of ETs that gave rise to Homo sapiens. Correct. Yes, that they've already created the early 
australopithecines and then on you know modified those created the homo erectus that apparently in this information those serve as a kind of um well as a, a servile race who are also used for sacrifices to the gods of these other beings that are resident on the planet so they're not having the best of times these homo erectus according to the information that's given uh, and what we have at 780,000 years ago yeah, is a, a second party you know now with some survivors marooned on the planet who decide that they will modify the existing hominins and make them somewhat more like themselves you know so you get a bit of the biblical kind of narrative there you know making us into their image somewhat more into their image obviously a more intelligent and um, you know rather modified kind of human uh, and that's what they set about doing after the destruction of the ship now, is that was that them doing that like more for survival of because they couldn't get back to where they're from, or was it more just like more of a scientific venture? There's a couple of different reasons why it's explained. Again, this is some of this stuff I can't obviously absolutely validate. You know, yeah, and I, no. but I said what it says in the in the information is that realizing that they can no longer colonize the ship, they utilize some of their genetic technology. Now, what they what they planned to do was use um, genetic engineering technologies to modify themselves to the planet. Right. And this actually makes a, a huge amount of sense. When you start thinking about these plots of a story, you know, you think, how does an alien live on another world? And, you know, how could you breathe? You know, and all that kind of stuff, right? These real right. world considerations that often when people come out with a story, they often wouldn't think to add that in. But it, it turns out that these beings have a very, what I'd say, a logical backstory in that they, they were in the process of modifying themselves. Their mothership has been destroyed. They're only partly modified towards living on our planet. So they now have a problem. The it says the radiation of the sun is injuring some of them. The air is, you know, is a problem for them. There's bacteria in the water that they can can't handle. There's all sorts of real world problems that they're facing, and they don't have enough time and technology left from this from the destruction of their ship. You know, they don't have enough time and technology left to finish this process. So what they realize they can do instead is utilize what remains to upgrade the humans. Now, there's two reasons why they do this. One of them is that. They view things in a very different way to us for a start. Now, I don't know if anyone's familiar with the Tibetan high lamas who say that when they come to the end of their life, they can enter into a deep meditation where they choose their next reincarnation. Now, to most people in the West, that sounds, you know, like really far out. But again and again, they have re-identified these reincarnated lamas by taking objects and so to um to the the house where the the, the signs have been given that this child has been reborn. Usually the Lama leaves some information on signs to look out for, like a rainbow behind the house on this particular day. and stuff. So they'll identify a possible reincarnated Lama, one of these children. They bring objects from the person's life. And in eventually in these cases, usually the children identify objects and can recite long Buddhist mantras, you know, usually like five-year-old kids and stuff. And they, and they know all these long mantras. So it's comes clear to people these are the reincarnations of masters now the aliens claim to be able to do something the same essentially that they are going to incarnate into these bodies they said that you know they will come back and they will utilize these bodies almost like fabricating a spacesuit for yourself that you can't live on the planet so you're creating something that you can so they look at consciousness in a way that more eastern way i suppose you could say in terms of what we understand here on earth um but also they say that this is a planet that is in a very dark sector of space. And there are a lot of beings in this sector that are very negative. Um, and they believe that they will give them the, the opportunity 
to incarnate into these forms, these human forms, which they they believe offer a path to a kind of redemption, you know, spiritual progression for very negative entities that are making up most of the systems around Earth and beyond in this, you know, this area of the galaxy. So it's kind of definitely a spiritual, metaphysical, somewhat abstract reasoning for why they're doing this. You know, it wouldn't it wouldn't make much sense to the absolute convinced materialist. So put it that way. Is this now like is this some type of like in in vitro fertilization or is this like are we they doing full on experiments and on these type of people? Like I'm I'm just kind because of, you know we got interspecies here. I don't like how are we creating these advanced races? DNA yeah, no, work. it's um it is in vitro. They're working on fetuses and implanting fetuses. Yeah, and it's clarified that some of these don't work out. You know, the, this isn't perfect from step one. Well, that's kind of what happened with Braden, so it makes yeah. sense. You got a perfect example right there. <laughs> yeah, still happening to this day. Yeah, you end up. Yeah, some of them are not yeah. not doing too well when they're born. Um, in fact, if you look at or when they grow up, for that matter. Yeah, or when they grow up. <laughs> we're, we're still not doing well. You look around, look at the planet. It hasn't really. I mean, to me, again, you can argue that you know some of this as well. People talk about upgrades. You know, if you look around in the topic in ancient aliens topics, you know, most mostly we hear about aliens modifying people and the upgrades. Right now, there are also problems that come from this. And again, if you think if you're experimenting on a, you know, what would be an alien race to you, right? You, you experiment on them. Even if you know a lot about DNA, you know, I think there's a good chance that you're going to engineer in some issues, right? Because it's, it's apart from the if you say you don't have all your technologies with you and you're doing this somewhat on the fly, somewhat in a hurry because you're dying. Um, you might expect some errors, and, and there are errors. Yeah. You know, so not well, just some get, of these beings die. But listen, sort of, everyone knows when you mess around with DNA, you get Jurassic Park. The dinosaurs <laughs> come unleashed. Well, right? even when wrong. you like, even when you know, like, with there's human error in our medical system every day. You know what I mean? And who knows the human body better than us, right? We're and we're still making these mistakes. Well, yeah, and the, these guys, you know, well, I say they probably do know DNA better than us. I mean, I, I, I posit that you know. But they were they would have had no ship, right? So maybe limited resources. So they're pulling a little bit of a MacGyver situation where they're just kind of like ah uh, scrambling with what they can. So yeah. So you think that maybe exactly some type of like CRISPR situation? Yes, I mean that's the the fingerprints that I see is of a CRISPR and also CRISPR gene drive type technologies, but obviously to a, a greater level than we have. But we can now start to recognize the fingerprints of it because of where we're at in our own technologies. Right. Um, and in fact, what we see in terms of well, in terms of some of the negative evidence, and I think that this to me is actually really compelling, too, that not only do we have the sudden increase in the brain size and we have all these we have a load of mysterious genes that appear and we have a, a chromosome two, which we'll go into more of in a bit. Uh, we have a lot of things happening at that time. But conversely, we have negative traits that have been engineered in now. And I talk about that in the book a bit. I said that, you know, particularly in the reproductive system of human beings, that there's some really glaring errors that don't make sense if we're talking Just about natural errors bruce one second before you get in there halfway through the show we got to take a quick beer break uh and then we'll come back and we'll jump right back into that mm-hmm. all right we're back where'd we leave off uh bruce was just about to tell us because i know he mentioned it uh just a second ago uh you know referring to the you know pretty much like the genetic markers or the hallmarks of 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 what you see as evidence of tampering or like a you know a kind of uh whether it's a interference in our own genome uh chromosome two was a as is an example i believe yes we've got a a few lines of evidence and i very quickly just 
end off from where we were at with the errors, because I mean, the error is also a part of the evidence, because if you look at the reproductive system, particularly of human females, but we have some really weird errors. I mean, if you compare childbirth between all the other primates and humans, right, you have a problem. <laughs> you find that it's incredibly dangerous for humans, right, to have children. And that, you know, we have the, uh, there's a long, painful childbirth that you know, too often results in death, even for the child or the mother. And you don't see that amongst the other primates. Right. Uh, there's also a huge number of spontaneously aborted fetuses, far more than any other primates, that we have all these errors in how reproduction happens. We have uh, hidden um, fertility. You don't know when a human female is fertile. We have all these these problems in there which don't look like that they would be favored by evolution when you think about it. Right. If evolution is removing problematic things, you know, over time. How can problems in our reproductive system not be negative and not be removed? And in fact, why are they there? Because if all the other primates don't have them, why would we evolve problems, new problems? So instead of getting rid of them, we've gone backwards. Well, I've right? heard of all like, primates. Isn't there some truth to the fact that like when, when humans evolved or they say humans evolved to walk upright, you don't, the hips narrowed and that's why females have to deliver their babies sooner, right? Because- they wouldn't fit through the narrow birth canal. You think evolution would have been smart enough? That was posited for a long time, but that that has been, I think, now pretty soundly shown to be not the case, that it's not down to the hip width. Okay. No, from, from having said so, um, That we have this, essentially, we now have a the, the birth of a fetus instead of an infant, that, unlike other primates, that the human child is born too early and is still, an, is still a fetal state really that we know and we develop outside the womb which again is odd it's you know look around you, the animal kingdom how are you around survive? all the other animals they're absolutely right. useless yeah they are i, yeah. I, I have yeah. one it right. can't do anything yeah you look at you can't do anything. No. <laughs> we're born as a fetus even our, our skull hasn't fused you know we can't stand up cut right they, these again are unusual traits we seem to the, there is like they say the fourth trimester which is outside the womb right um there's a lot of things about how we reproduce and infants that show that something drastically different has occurred since we split from chimpanzees, right? Mm. That we seem to, in some ways, regressed, right? Which is, which is really odd. Now, the way I explain that is if, if you think, if you modified humans and you gave them certain traits which were beneficial, but some of those changes that you did using your like, CRISPR-type technologies, some of them had consequences that were negative, right? Those would stay... They won't be removed by evolution because if you remove those negative traits, it will take the positive benefits with them. That those mm -hmm. same areas of the genome that have been modified to give us the positive traits are what are causing these fixed problems that cannot be removed. And that's why we have in the human line all of these strange problems that seem like evolution should have cleared them up. And instead they appeared you know, suddenly alongside with the, the big brain that suddenly all these other strange problems have appeared and cannot be removed. And I think that's the one because they are tied to these benefits. So that's one. Now, when we can, we can from that, I can just quickly clarify. So what is the other evidence apart from that? Um, you've touched on chromosome two, which I think is one of the key markers for when this happened. Um, some of the kind of work that was going on in terms of, you know, you know, fusions and modifications that chromosome two for a long time has been posited by not only by ancient aliens theorists but also by creationists as being some kind of marker for modern humans you know for homo sapiens that it's um it, it kind of you know, separates us from all the other primates 
the whatever it was that happened there. Now, if you're a creationist, you might say, well, they say God kind of, you know, creates dust and that this is the marker to show that we are not a primate. We are separate. We are, you know, the 46 chromosome human. We're not like the 48 chromosome primates or any of the other archaic humans before us. Now, if you're from the ancient alien side, particularly I, I was thinking of Lloyd Pye, spoke quite a lot about this before his sort of sad early demise from cancer, if people are familiar with Lloyd Pye's work. Um, he used to talk about chromosome two, but, but where things have moved on is that we now have some dating on this event. In the past, it was just like this strange thing happened where you have an end-to-end fusion of two chromosomes. Uh, the fusion site has deletions and additions of information, which is unusual for a straight end-on-end like chromosome fusion. Uh, Also, you find that it's fused on an active gene, one that is to do with the brain, the reproductive system, uh, the immune system, which again is is strange. And in fact, most fusions are either negative, very negative, or uh, neutral. And in this case, we know that it was profoundly beneficial because we have a total replacement of all humans on Earth with 46 chromosome variety rather than 48, which would have been you know, universal on the planet, right? That that, again, is strange. You know, we don't see a small population of 46 chromosomes and a larger one of 48. We have a total replacement, right? So this is one of the reasons we know that it was extremely beneficial yeah, to, to replace everybody. It's almost as though you had such great uh, benefits that the you know to, you outcompete anyone and also suggests that when you interbred, somehow this became the dominant trait rather than recessive, usually with a, right. a fusion, right? So there's a lot of weirdness with this. Now, when did it happen? Uh, it turns out that, that Neanderthals, Denisovans, and us, we all had this fusion, right? So we know that it has to have occurred before the divergence of these lineages. And in the recent years, it's turned out the dates on when that happened has been pushed back to between, well, depending on who you look at, between... 550 to 900,000 years, but the, the preference there is for around 750 to 800,000 years ago. Now, and in the middle of that, of course, is 780,000, the date that I'm dealing with, right? So if you go in the middle of the you know the mainstream date, and that's just in the last couple of years, they've pushed back. They used to think it was about 400,000 years ago that Homo sapiens kind of split off. Um, DNA from a site called Cima de los Huesos in Spain, um, 430,000-year-old samples, showed us that Neanderthals were well on their way to development at 430,000 years ago, and it split off from us long before. And that's why the dates have been pushed back. Um, we also wanted to see, of course, how far back did the chromosome 2 fusion go, knowing that it has to be, you know, earlier than 750, like, could it go back 3 million, 4 million, you know, 5 million to the split with chimps? That was the other question. Now, there was a British biologist who you know, I refer to in the book uh, who looked at this at the chemical level. Now, I won't pretend that I could do this, but I'm not, you know, I don't have a lab or anything. So this guy had, he's gone in and he's looked at it from the chemical level and he determined that you can, you can understand that when the ends of chromosomes um, fuse, the mutation rate on them goes down because you know they're, they're frozen in place in the middle of a chromosome instead of the ends. So he was able to look at this and determine that the fusion had happened not much earlier than 750,000 years ago, i.e., again, on that moment when we have the splitting of these different human lineages. So it's, it's a fundamental change that leads to Denisovans, Neanderthals, and all the large-brained humans. Right. So that is a major one for anyone out there wants to see, well, what's the evidence? You know, look at chromosome two and go into some of the details. A lot of articles out there about why it's weird uh, and why the creationists kind of latch onto it. Um, But then we also have another thing happening at the time. It turns out that there's brain genes. There's one that's described as having, I think, actually R-gap. If people want to look at the R-gap gene, this is quite interesting because in the last few weeks, and I guess 
you know, look, synchronicity, call it what you want. In the last few weeks, an experiment was run where they took this RGAP2 gene, right, and they put it into monkeys. And I talk about this specific gene in the book because it's one of the ones that was highlighted as anomalous when I was digging into this. Um, and it turns out that in monkeys, it gives them this brain, you know, with the folds and a larger brain with folds. And the article, oh, I think it's a couple crazy. of weeks ago. I think I, just, I think I actually read that one. I was preparing for it. I think I Be actually careful, read that article. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They should stop doing that experiment. Or yeah, we're going to have Planet of Do the Apes here. Do not name anytime. any of them Caesar. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's weird. It, it, it turns out, yeah, you know, it makes the brain expand rapidly, gives us some of the folds of the brain. And this one, I think, is the one which, when I was looking into it, 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 um, now I'm pretty sure it's the one which they said it looks like it's cut out. Like there's a segment, it's like, like a short part of a gene that is cut out, replicated, and put back in. In the paper that I looked at, they sort of described it as being Xeroxed and put back in. Or it is the other one that was described as having appeared fully formed from junk DNA. Because it was two brain genes that were that I, I kind of focused on in the book. Now, I can't remember which which is which. But it was there was two. One of them that, yeah, they, they say, you know, appears fully formed out of non-coding DNA. Like, just appears and is crucial to our brain development. And another one, which they say looks like it's a segment of a longer gene that has been cut out, you know, replicated and put back in. They actually describe it as being looked like Xeroxed and put back in. <laughs> so would that be, that would be a portion like, so you're saying that that would be a portion of their original DNA that they've put into what whatever passed down before the, yeah, passed down. It would be, you know, it's human DNA. But what you do is you find, if you find a a, a portion of a gene that is useful to you, you can cut that out, replicate it, and then splice it in. So you'd have now uh, one original segment, and then you have the copy, which you add a copy, right? So you don't need to put in alien DNA. You're, you're using the existing DNA. And in fact, when I talk about with hybrid humans, I mean, to some degree, really, I'm talking about splicing in material from other terrestrial species. We are full of material from other species like fungi and insects and all sorts of uh, particularly viruses so you don't really need to create a human from an early you know from a primate or from an earlier hominin you don't really need alien dna now i'm not saying there isn't any because it'd be hard to detect it because we don't have a source sample but but what you really mainly need to do is be able to know the genome well enough to take segments that you want you can replicate them put back in or you can switch off and on gene functions or express gene functions stronger you don't really need to do you know, in the conventional, you know, once upon a time, it was always for hybrids, you know, we were half alien, half human, right? Um, and people still suggest that, you know, you can read out the people saying, you know, we think we're, you know, alien DNA and stuff. But what is alien DNA? We have no idea. Right? We don't know that there is DNA out there, right? right. That we only know one DNA-based life forms, you know, the, the Earth's life forms, right? Um, so until we have a sample from outside, it's problematic to even assume that. And, we, you know, if we find a sample and we can contrast it, and it turns out that, yeah, look, it's DNA like ours and that we're related to, then that's fine. But for now, what, what we can see is evidence of modification through something like a very advanced CRISPR and gene drive technology. And gene drives are important as well, because if anyone's familiar with gene drives, what it is is you can, not only can you go in now and you modify the genome, but you can do it in such a way as that, you know, if, if the modified organism goes off to reproduce, with a, another member of its species who's not modified, that when they interbreed, the gene drive overwrites the information of the other parent. So you end up with 100% from the modified organism in the child, no matter who it goes and, you know, when you go forth and multiply, it doesn't matter who these modified humans, you know, mate with, the child will have the upgrades 
that that would be what would have happened. This is my view on it, that we have genome. And that's why we have a total replacement of 48 chromosome humans by 46 chromosome humans. We're doing this now with mosquitoes that you can eradicate. In fact, you can make a population extinct using gene drives. It's a, it's a kind of a Pandora's box. Turning into we've already opened. Yeah, I think they've been, and I know they've been experimenting with certain populations of mosquitoes to engineer them in order for them to like not have the limiter on their feeding mechanism. So when they eat, they explode and die and those ones reproduce, pass it on to their, to their progeny. And also to um, make them infertile. Mm-hmm, that one too. You yeah. can make a whole population infertile with it over time. And so these are extinction technologies. You can extinct species with them. So they are a Pandora's box. But there's evidence that we were created utilizing these. And that's why we see a total replacement. So we are, it's like a CRISPR gene drive technology, something more advanced. But um, there are not only genes that appear, not only the chromosome 2 fusion and these genes that you know appear to be modified or just appear out of nowhere. Right. Um, but there's something else in there as well called human accelerated regions. And I know that um, for me, this was really a, one of the really big clinchers, because if you look into some of the ideas from scientists who say, look, imagine aliens want to leave us a message in our DNA. And then this has been flowed around for decades, the idea that possibly our DNA contains messages from aliens. You know, it's kind of a thought experiment for most scientists, right? They don't necessarily believe it. But they've said, if you wanted to find a message, you, you couldn't really look in just in normal areas, of, you know, genes and stuff, because those change a lot over time. So it'd have to be somewhere in the non-coding DNA, and particularly in segments that are considered to be highly conserved, which means that they very rarely change. And a message in those areas could persist for millions of years, potentially, right? So they're saying that's the only place you could find them. Now, funnily enough, if you go into the non-coding or junk DNA, as it used to be called, and you look in some of these highly conserved areas, they find these anomalous stretches called human accelerated regions, which is where it appears that evolution has been accelerated massively in some way. And the first one of these was found called HAR1, right? Uh, they contrasted it, and this is a 118 DNA letter long segment. They contrasted it between chimps, chickens, and humans. And in the chicken and the chimp, there was a two letter difference. Now, those species have been separate for 300 million years. So the stability there is just insane. So you think two mutations have been successful in 300 million years, one every 150 million approximately, right? Now, so when you come to contrast the chimp and the human being with supposedly five, six million years of divergence, it was you know understood that there'd be zero differences between the two. There definitely should be zero differences. And it turned out that there was 18 letters that had changed. Right. Which is astounding. It's a huge, wow. big number between such a short time and such a, a huge change. Yeah. Huge change. And they ran the numbers on this and they said that basically there was a 0% chance by any known evolutionary mechanism. Right. So, so what the hell is going on here? Right. And there's now they found hundreds of these. And, and keep in mind, when we talk about evolution, we're talking about uh, random, you know, random mutation, natural selection, basically, you know, there are some other accepted elements going on, but largely that, you know, people are thinking about, you know, random mutations, you know, um, right. So random to me, I don't know to you guys, random to me would be changes throughout the body, right? You know, random, you've got mutations in your kidneys, something to do with your, your leg, <laughs> mutation to right. do with the spine, you know, right. Over 50% of these HRs yeah. that have detected so far are to do with the brain. Does that sound random to you? <laughs> Seems very specific, <laughs> very specific. Yeah, rather than random, and that's what they, the ones they understand so far. Over fifty percent are to do with the brain, and particularly fetal development of the brain. 
i.e. these changes to do within the, the fetal development stage, which is, again, remember we were talking about that this engineering was done on fetuses. It was, you know, modifying the fetal development. Right. And, and that's where we find these HARs is in fetal development of the brain. Right. Uh, and I posit that we also have had changes that cause us to be born early. And that this is part of the modification because they realized that to get the brain to grow to where it's at, it couldn't possibly get out of the womb. You know, the, these humans would all die. They would kill their mothers because the brain, the, the brain size expansion they want is just too extreme. So now they have to also modify us so that we are born early and that we are born as a fetus. And then the development continues. We also are highly neotenous. They have frozen us into an infant stage. And if you look at, you know, a lot of people say, we don't look like chimps. Right, hang on a minute. If you look at a baby chimp and right, look at a human being, that we do actually look rather like infant chimps, right? Because they have very little hair, they have the flat face, they have a lot of the the physiology that we have. That we are actually considered. If you look into this, we're considered to be essentially an ape frozen into its infant stage, and that and that right. remains for the rest of our life. And that's called neoteny. It's the preservation of of infant traits in a species that persist into adulthood. And one of the things about being an infant that st- you know stays like that for life is if you look, the infants of most species. Um, they're more flexible mentally and they develop play, they, you know, they experiment um, and they can flex between things, but then they become very rigid as they go into adulthood. They have a singular focus. You know, if it's collecting plums from one tree and feeding their young and that's all they do pretty much. Right. But when they're young, they have play and, you know, other activities. Right. I like this a lot because I've always felt that myself as a giant baby. (laughs) I mean, we sort of are. I mean, think about it, even as adults. We still like to go and play on game systems. I mean, we don't just become this rigid provider of food who thinks of nothing else but, you know, the young, the spawn, you know. I mean, that's yeah. that's not really what we're like. And uh, in fact, if you look at all of our systems are based on things like entertainment and, and also mental dexterity and that we can change jobs, you know, we can change between loads of different... Yeah, I, I would think our thought processes, even as we age, like they, they still remain, you know... Re- quite malleable like you can still whatever you can learn you can unlearn and you can always keep learning new things beyond what you know um some things might become more concrete or like the way that you think about things but there's still a lot of the parts of the brain that still kind of develop beyond uh you know just the infant stages like so absolutely i mean we say about older people you know much older people you know you get to your 70s 80s about them being stuck in their ways because they start to become less rigid. But as I say, we are far more flexible throughout life than any other species that we know of, right? They do become specialized. Uh, we don't. And that, that comes with some you know good and bad. But that, again, is part of this change, that we've been stuck in an infancy. Now, that gives us this, that helps, again, with our mental flexibility. So it's not accidental to this. And that on top of that, we have this, um, you know, these changes that mean that we are born early, we develop outside the womb over years. And also that's impacted social structure right we had to have a social structure because it's very hard to look after a baby on your own like totally on your own out in the wild right with no one else to help you know then obviously they're vulnerable to predators then you become vulnerable to predators you know you, you also have to collect food uh you know there's there's lots of reasons why because it's obvious that then you need more people right than just you or if you look at other animals that can survive them and hold the baby clinging to them you know and they can carry on with their life but you can't do that really as a singular human so things like social structures began to build out of this prolonged infancy it has major changes um and so again i, I don't think that's accidental and also i should say quickly as well that it's worth pointing out that humans are the only organism on the planet that is known to be self-domesticating right 
Now, I don't believe that any organism can be self-domesticating unless there is a process that begins with someone else domesticating it. Because we only see domestication in animals that we domesticate, right? Right. Yeah. So, so what the hell's going on here? Because you know they, they think we are the self-domesticating ape and all this, but. I just don't believe, I don't buy that. I think that you have to have someone starts the process of domestication. And when they compared Neanderthals and us, there's evidence in the genes that they weren't that different from us. But the main difference, because they went back to a kind of a feral lifestyle, right? In the woods, small groups, uh, living, hunter-gatherer, a very sort of feral lifestyle that they began to, I don't know what we call it, degenerate, you could say. But I mean, to, they went through a process of... Um, uh, I can't remember that. There's a, a, a DNA process where you can start in your own lifetime. There's a feedback loop. If you live out in a different environment, it starts to change you. Now, it shows that they compared tame animals and wild animals from the same species, and they found that the gene differences were similar to those in Neanderthals and modern humans. So when you look at them, they were stockier, they were tougher, if you like, you know, more robust, uh, big brow ridges, you know, and all this stuff. It turns out a lot of that is to do with going feral. If we were to spend a few thousand years living, you know, isolated groups out in the wild, that we would start to develop that robust look as well. So we're just in a process of ongoing domestication. Right. So, and it's really weird. I think, again, that's something that people should think about. You know, who started domesticating humans? How the hell did that happen? So unless there was someone else here. So right. one, link, one link I wanted to ask you about is that I'm just still, I'd like you to kind of elaborate on is so you know we're we're thinking that there's a, a race that was you know we kind of talked about stranded here and they've we're starting to engineer us but what was in it for them is that so they can pass down their technologies or their knowledge like what why why are they meddling if they're stranded like are they are we some sort of vessel for their consciousness to you know create AI like they did and then get off the planet again. What was it? What do you think it was in it for them? Like why first dive into gene splicing the, you know, the earth? Yeah. I mean, again, I mean, we did touch on this, but it was, yeah, to do with them saying that they couldn't survive here long-term themselves because they hadn't finished modifying their forms, but that they could transfer their consciousness into these new bodies as they died, that they could transfer their consciousness into the new bodies. Uh, but also that they said that the other entities that were here, these more negative types would also be able to do that, that they themselves would incarnate. So there's a metaphysical spiritual aspect to this. Again, you know, people that just say, oh, well, Oh, reincarnation, you know, oh, here we go, woo-woo, ridiculous, new age or whatever. But, you know, if you look at the work of um, Professor St Stevenson, who was at the University of Virginia, he proved the reincarnation was real. Now, I can say that, I say that, I, no qualm saying that. It's as proven as any other thing in science. The guy went to I mean, astonishing levels of evidence where even um, some of the greatest skeptics of our era point to Stevenson's work as perhaps the only evidence of a paranormal-type phenomena that they would be willing to kind of consider because of just the rigor of his work where he showed again and again that children had not only memories of past lives, but in many cases, birthmarks corresponding to the way they died. Mm -hmm. So bullet, wow. the, the moles where the bullet wounds were in the previous life um, or, or marks, birthmarks where, you know, someone or people born without their fingers. And in the last life, they remembered the fingers being chopped off and they were born without them. That he, he showed that again and again, the children not only remember details that he could prove going to other villages or other countries, proving the stories that these children were telling, but also finding birthmarks that corresponded. Right. And, and so many cases, if anyone looks into Stevenson's work, 
it's, it's unbelievable, right? So if you look at the evidence of reincarnation and accept it, and any reasonable person who looks at his evidence will have to accept it because there's no other explanation for it than that there is some transmission of consciousness. Um, so if these ET know about that, they take this seriously in a way that we, they don't say poo-poo, it's new age, they say it's obviously real, um, that they have utilized a mechanism by which they can transfer their consciousness, the same as these Taban Lamas, as we touched on, say that they can do this. So if now, you have to take what they're saying, that's what they say that they can do. My follow-up to that is, then do you think that like with our population exploding, is that consciousness getting watered down? No, because we're in a, a our closed system isn't the earth. Our closed system really contains the universe. So though they're saying that they will incarnate into this, it doesn't mean that over the rest of the time that we don't have anyone else incarnating into this. Again, as they're saying, these extraterrestrials that are more negative in this sector of space will be able to incarnate in. Right. So then you have to ask, okay, where are these coming from? So they're saying there's other worlds in this sector of space which are inhabited and that these beings can incarnate here. And indeed that they are here. And in fact, if you look at the well, look at the problems on our planet, it's it not, for me, a stretch to think that there's some very negative entities incarnating into human forms. Because I mean, there is some just some manic mania, horrific stuff that goes on on this planet. Where you know, someone says, "Hey, I think that's negative ETs." I wouldn't come up with something better for why they're behaving the way they're behaving. Quite honestly, because we've got some <laughs> crazy stuff that happens here. Um, so yeah, so no, so it's it's not a closed system of just the Earth. That there's other beings, there's other civilizations, there's... I can buy into that. I've dealt with people where I don't even recognize them on a, like any kind of emotional like, level. You're not even on... Are you even from yeah, this you're planet? Like, you're <laughs> like... Yeah, exactly, right? So it's, it's you know, to say that, like, and then you're describing some sort of, you know, negative energy or a different energy that, that would make sense of why you have that would, when you deal with some people, you, you just... You can see that you can see the difference. Yeah. Look at the narcissism. Look at the I, I don't mind killing a million people to put, you know, an oil well somewhere else. I mean, they, look, there's this is extraordinarily dark thinking, particularly amongst some of our leadership, you know, and in the corporate world as well. Anyway, look, anyway, in hierarchical structures, you end up with these sort of narcissist psychopaths that seem to be just willing to do anything and that don't seem to be human like. And that's why people say, well, why would they do that? I would never do that. I don't think they're like you and me. You know, I don't think, I think on the consciousness level, we have to rethink what an alien is, that if it's an alien consciousness, you know, then, then you start, like say, you can meet people and think this person is just unrecognizable in terms of their mind. You think that they are not like humans that you usually interact with, that if you think that, yes, that's what they're telling us, that some of these people aren't, and that this is a place where essentially you can say the summary would be earth is a giant rehab for souls and that, you know, <laughs> a gal galactic rehab where souls come to process and become more evolved through the human form. And then you look at it, if you looked at the earth in terms of a cosmic rehab, it actually looks like one. Yeah, you could say yeah. that. Yeah, it looks like a cosmic <laughs> asylum to me. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the caretakers? Then you start going through that thing, the UFOs, the contact experiences. It looks like, and they often say, look after the planet or look after it, or you know, you're not aware you're, you're spiritual beings. The things that these ET, when people have these contact experiences, they're not usually things about telling us about, you know, uh, cosmology and about, oh, you know, and what it was like for them to voyage the solar system. Often they're saying, you know, look after the planet. Uh, you're supposed to be progressing spiritually or that, you know, here's, a, here's an image of you when you were an ET. Too many times in, in those experiences, people see their old form and they show them, say, you were once one of us. And they show them bodies or they are shown tanks with bodies. And then they find themselves in one of the tanks in the bodies. And there's a lot of contact experiences like that where they suggested that the human that is taken was once one of those ETs. Now, there's hundreds and hundreds of contact experiences like that. 
Um, if you think about it, if these other, this is what we're told in this transfer is that, yeah, most of these souls here are from alien races and that you're here to progress probably from having done things that were not beneficial. You know, in the past, you've come here for your rehab, for your progression, and that when these beings interact, they often say, and in some of them, you know, benevolent beings, uh, and they're shown, sometimes you're shown this, some people see themselves as having been negative beings, reptilians and all sorts of and other people see themselves as being having been members of what seems to be benevolent races. I mean, so those are extraordinary stories, but when you put them into this, what we are told in this contact experience, they're telling us exactly that that's what it is here, that there are a lot of souls from different areas of the cosmos here. And that weirdly matches with modern encounters where people are shown all this stuff. So, uh, you know, going on to that about the, uh, we have a lot of, um, we've already talked about a lot of strong, like biological evidence, uh, kind of supporting your theory about hybrid humans, like uh, speaking on to the, the cultural significance of, uh, commonalities across cultures. I know in your book, you mentioned you focus on the Pleiades, which is, it comes up in the ancient alien theories and it comes across there. Um, can you kind of expand on like how that factors that how the Pleiades, one of the, you know, one of the brightest constellations in the night sky kind of factors in with your, with your theory as well. Well, if you look, I mean, if you look up the stars, I mean, obviously there's trillions of them and even in your backgrounds, I can see a good selection there. And yet, funnily enough, when we look at um, ancient mythology and law around the planet, we find that there really is sort of focusing on three, particularly, which would be the Pleiades, Orion and Sirius that, that come up the most now out of the now that's kind of funny in the first place you say because there's much brighter stars up there you know there's there's a, probably orion actually is probably the one that stands out the most if you look up at the night sky orion does stand out but beyond that i mean you're looking around there's some really interesting bright stars and constellations so why is it we just see you know this focus orion pleiades and sirius it, it, in itself is very strange but the pleiades is i think the most commonly referred anywhere. If you look at cultures across South America, in the jungles, um, you know, isolated jungle tribes that talk about the Pleiades, uh, you go across to the to North America, obviously the indigenous, the Indians there, uh, lots of the tribes have key law about either ancestors being in the Pleiades or a connection to the Pleiades in terms of like a heaven-like place where the soul returns to the Pleiades, legends like that. Um, go down to Australia, the indigenous people there, they talk about the Seven Sisters Dreaming. And in fact, the Seven Sisters Dreaming, I think, is about the only one which is found across nearly every nation in Australia. And there's hundreds of different nations with different law and different stories that they have this seven sisters dreaming where the seven sisters walked on the land in the creation time and were to do with creating things. Um, you can go across to, to Japan where Subaru, which obviously people see on the car, that's to do with their ancient law on the Pleiades. Um, pretty much everywhere you go. I mean, there's Europe, Eurasian law, you go to European law on the Pleiades. Um, these stories really across culture, obviously the Greeks, you know, to a lot Orion the Hunter chasing the Pleiades. That story of Orion the Hunter chasing the Pleiades also features in Australia. Amongst the Aboriginals, like, what the hell's going on there for a start? Because the same story, like a hunter chasing seven sisters. Hang on a minute. Isn't that in Greece as well? So there's these stories that are really universal, right? Right. Now, in in this in this book, you know, the, we are told well, from the initial information from the object that I identify as potentially a Bracewell Sentinel probe, this Chiringa, that it claims that this was the you know, the origin point for the craft, that it arrived here from what sounds to me like a kind of wormhole, a gateway it passes through in the Pleiades system and arrives here. Now, it's, it's explained that they're not necessarily resident there, but that's where they jumped through. But there's beings from different star systems on board 
So but if you imagine if you were an ET arriving here and you're dealing with some pretty primitive people, are you going to go into a complex cosmological narrative or just point and say, we're from there, pretty much? We're from the Pleiades. Yeah. You know, where did you come from? From there. That was the last place we came from, the Pleiades. That's all you, that's all you need to know. You don't need to know about the complex. Second start of the right and onward. Straight till on till morning. Onward till dawn. <laughs> You might not even want us to know. I mean, it's, it might even be security implications as well. I mean, you can go into that. <laughs> they just say, ah, oh, that one. <laughs> yeah. uh, that one. I want you coming here. You know, you, you can go there. We came from there. Let me tell you something. Some alien wife, 100% did not want them giving out their address. 100%. That's universal. That's universal. Thanks very much. We don't need you here. Yeah. So, I mean, I've, look, I mean they, that's where they, they say they're from. And that law is all around the world. And so you can go, you know, Mayans and Egyptians, all sorts of cultures point to the Pleiades important. Some of the same cultures will also talk about Orion or Sirius. But, the, you know, that Pleiades story is universal. So what is going on here? And if you, I like there's a story that I mentioned in the book by um, a guy called Wilfred Buck, who's a, like a, an indigenous wisdom keeper, I believe, up in Canada. So, and he talks about how they have a story that um, the Pleiades is the hole in the sky where there is a, an anomaly, and he said that's where Grandmother Spider's web, a thread of web, came down to the earth to, and connects to here. And he says, you know, in his view, it's an anomaly, like a wormhole. Um, now, that's a, that's a kind of crazy story because you think about it, you know, he's identifying a wormhole opening up from the Pleiades in their own law, and it obviously connects to a web. You know, if you think about it, like a web of stargates that are around the universe, mm. that this is how these beings travel, and they encode all this information for us. Um, and that story, again, with the Aboriginal stories as well. They talk about either like a, a, tr a hollow tree trunk, uh, a serpent rope, um, these are a cave that you go through, all this kind of stuff, which again looks awfully like uh, our interpretations of a wormhole opening up, right? And that that kind of story is again that's encoded in cultures around the world. So, like, what is going on here? How would these early civilizations, early cultures, have any indication that wormholes existed in space, right? And things like that. There's just from a conventional materialist point of view, it doesn't stack up for us, right? Because how would they know that? You know, we're just now, you know, cutting edge physics, coming up with these kind of ideas. And there's people like, oh yeah, yeah, we know about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I actually, now that I, now that I'm thinking about it, uh, it's interesting that I know just a few days ago, they came out with uh, a couple of scientists uh, are, are trying to put together evidence to make the case for that this, the 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 ninth planet this planet that is outside of our solar system whether people think it's nibiru the planet x you know those kinds of uh connections or whatever but they don't think it's actually a planet they're saying that there might be evidence that it's a small black hole and it's actually orbiting around our solar system so i you know perhaps you know if we talk about wormholes you know you got to talk about you know black holes potentially being able to be used for sp space travel some kind of if it Einstein Rosenbridge. Yeah, if it collapses on, on itself, it's got to have an exit point somewhere. Right. And it, I mean, you know, and, and you know, black holes are supposed to, I, I suppose, like after they, they consume a certain amount of mass, you know, they collapse in on themselves. But if it's grapefruit, maybe it's just been there for a really long time, just constantly consuming mass, just sitting there unused. And now it's kind of just shrinking. Well, you know, that kind of lines up. I've, I'd figure that'd be kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah, I read that as well. And I, I totally, I agree with that. I, I felt that that was a, a, an indication. They said that, yeah, it could be a high mass, you know, an anomaly, a spatial anomaly out on the edges of our solar system. That would mesh very well with some of these stories that there is, you know, a jumping off point, you know, a, a stargate right entrance in our solar system. And that the fact that we're detecting a high mass anomaly of some sort out there 
on the edges is intriguing indeed because you know if that is and again you know with Sitchin and people throughout Ninth Planet you know it's a very strange wacky story but you know aliens coming from a planet in our solar system that, that does not stack up you know you can straight away there's a lot of reasons why you could di- like dismiss that okay it's just seeming ridiculous but if, if that Ninth Planet is the anomaly and if beings were saying yeah we come from this object out there on the edges of your solar system like and we've interpreted that as a planet at some point Right, that would make more sense because it's like, well, yeah, no, if they're coming from an object out there, but it's not a planet, it's the anomaly, that would make a lot more sense. Yeah, I, w- I would even think if you were going to create some sort of stargate that is, you know, high mass, high energy, you wouldn't want it in the middle of a solar system. No. You'd probably want it on the outside, uh, you know, moving around so it doesn't smack into anything potentially. But So maybe, maybe we'll get to see that because they're focusing quite a lot on the moment, aren't they, to to finally see if they can see this directly. Of course, if it's a black hole, they won't see it directly. They'll only ever see <laughs> the absence of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyways, Bruce, I, mean, I think... Uh, that's the time you promised us. We'll probably let you get back to sleep here. I don't know if you're going to stay up for the rest of the morning or what, what your plan is. But any other final points you want to make about your book, Exogenesis? And tell everyone where they can find it and where they can find you. Yeah, I mean, if people want to get the book, it's obviously in the US. Print version should be in stores, as far as I understand. If you go into a shop and ask, and in Canada, and um, I think you can get it in the stores. Uh, obviously, it's on Borders and Amazon and all that. You can get the Kindle version as well. There's an Audible version, which I think is on wherever audio books are sold, as far as I know. I mean, I know it's on Audible, but I think it's on elsewhere. Um, the, in Europe, I think everything but the print version is available due to the coronavirus has slowed right. shipping. So that the book is arriving in Europe at the end of this month. Um, if people want to check out my free documentary on this topic as well, which is called 780,000, um, which was in, I did that in partnership with Skeptico, Alex at Skeptico podcast, that if people look online on his YouTube, they'll find the 780,000 documentary free. So, you know, check it out. Um, and of course, they can follow me on Twitter, which is Exogenesis HH, or I'm on Facebook, if they want to reach me, you know, they can reach me through Facebook and Messenger and all that. So I'm around and um, on Ancient Aliens, the last couple of seasons, people can see me on there giving a few points. I don't know if they'll have me back in the future. We'll see. But anyway, so I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm around if you want to find me or see what I'm up to. Hey, Bruce, I think we can all agree that some strange stuff definitely happened during human evolution that's still unde- like undecided. Mm-hmm. And yep. I mean, obviously on this podcast, alien intervention in some fashion is always on the forefront like of it, our minds. So hey, we, like pre- we appreciate you taking the time to come on, especially in the middle of the morning like that. And uh, we'll be sure, sure to post all your links and everything to our listeners and hope to talk to you again sometime. Thank you all. Thank you all very much. Pleasure. Enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Bruce. Take Thanks, care. Bruce. Bye. All right, Bruce Fenton, everybody. Man, I'll say this. That was awesome. That I, I, do, I don't know if I'm going to be like, oh, I believe his his theory and his story that he tells. But I will say this. I have years and years ago, I did a whole bunch of mushrooms one time and I, I identify with a lot of what he's saying. Cause I'm like, I've been there in a, like a psychedelic trip. I've been to the, like the concept he's talking about. Now I'm not saying like the aliens, but like the reincarnation stuff. Like I've been there on a psychedelic trip to the story he's saying. So when he's saying that, like, this is a universal story, I'm like, listen, I've been there. I've, I've seen it. 
Not in that, if, that same it. words, but it's just weird. I synced it. I synced it. Anyone who's done like high level psychedelics, like and a lot of them, where you've had that dark, like where you go to a dark place and you basically that die. sounds terrifying. Why would anybody uh, want to do you, that? They people know. There's definitely going to be people that identify with that. That's terrifying. Yeah, there's so much we could have theorized on him, but he had so many points. I just let him just ramble his ramble on. It was awesome. No, it was great. Yeah. That that was really cool. I really enjoyed that. Like the stuff about. I really wanted to go more into like the consciousness and like how consciousness is pro like if everything's just energy and cannot be created or destroyed, just transformed, then you can go into, you go down that, that rabbit hole of like, well, maybe like if you think about it, our whole, all we are is just like a brain and a nervous system. The rest of us, the meat suit and the, whatever's powering that brain is the energy. Like that's your consciousness. So you can, you can go down that whole rabbit hole. We could have I, have a bit dude, more meat than the others. Yeah. I, yeah, baby. Whoa. <laughs> meat boy over here. Uh, the one thing that I was getting, I was super high at the beginning of this podcast. So when he started going, my brain was <laughs> fucking racing. I remember Zell, how you were talking about like, pull, like you, the other day you were talking about like doing music and pulling that out of thin air and stuff. Yep. Um, part of me was thinking when he was talking about these aliens that like, you know, they're jumping their consciousness into us. They had this massive silica ship that, you know, would obviously be sort some sort of hive mind that would have the collective knowledge. Um, if they were tapped into that in these species and they genetically alter us and that's why we had to have such our brain had to expand so much so fast is because basically they're trying to make a biological hard drive that can contain all their data mm. but the problem is we're not quite there so basically each one of us is only a little key to a certain a amount piece of, of it. a piece of like the universal knowledge that's what I was going through my brain yeah like it's that. all it's all very um avatar it's all very yeah. like avatar yeah. kind of stuff it's that's what i always think of when people are like you know transmitting your consciousness into uh you know a, a genetically modified you know suit another meat suit like um but it's not like it's not out of the realm of you know conceivability it's, as far as it goes it's like we, you know it is concepts like this have existed in sci-fi i mean it's altered carbon it's it, yeah your avatars you, you all that kind of stuff there's, there's a bunch of stories that kind of cover the same stuff but um, you know, downloading, like Zell said, essentially we're Fucking just matrix. electrical impose, impulses and, and genetic data, just data all kind of poured into a thing. So if you kind of just, you know, if, if you stored that consciousness, maybe that's the way for them to travel. They stored it all into some sort of crystal lattice structure. Shoot it I across. Know, I know we, we, as a, as the human race, like we've begun to, uh, recognize and, and utilize quartz structures to start, uh, you know, etching our data. I know they they put one on like the ISS or they put one on the... Yeah, they had those. It's like the quartz hard drive that's like a thousand times more potent yeah. for memory yeah, than like a normal thousand times SSD. More dense or, than, you know, yeah. whatever, you know. So it's like, yeah, like it's, it's not out of the realm of possibility. Of all the it's theories very, of ancient aliens, like building humans or creating humans... This makes uh, most sense. Uh, that this one made the most sense to me. Yeah, totally. There was a little bit of like, there's, there's maybe there's a tangibleness to it, right? Maybe like, like maybe like the spaceship stuff, like that, like maybe not, but like the fact, like how we've been, how yeah, we are, more, so okay, different. Well, well, the, the, I, I will give him a pass on that because he's just he's 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 found a theory. Yep. And he's linking it, linking it, linking, and he's hit a wall where he's like, I'm not really sure what would have caused this. Maybe some sort of war happened. Yeah. But like on that part, I'm like, oh, dude, this is this right. is and part one of my eight part trilogy. Yeah. 
Yeah, Eight part that, trilogy. That stuff, the whole war thing that came from the narrative uh, that he said from Valerie Barrow, who had been the the kind of caretaker of that that Chiringa thing, which are actual things. Like you can look those up. Yeah. They're small little artifacts uh, in Aboriginal culture that are in, incredibly sacred, and and nobody really has, you know, some oh, scientists say they're Chiringa. mostly just wood or they're just really special pieces of rock. But I thought he was talking really about those little sugar sticks that you eat, <laughs> churros. Yeah, those are those are also very sacred and and delicious. <laughs> well, I also learned today that silica is just not that little package in your beef jerky that you're not supposed to eat. <laughs> you know, it's funny. You know, it's funny. There used to be a meme where it was like, I remember seeing it a couple of times. Where it was like silica, those silica packs. And it's like, do not eat. And the person eats them. And then all of a sudden his eyes go wide and he learns all the secrets <laughs> of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, and I never, I was like, oh, you know, it's funny. And then when he was saying this and you just said that, it made me think of that. I'm like, man, no, oh, it's hidden. All, all the knowledge you want, it's hidden right there in your ramen. Anyways, let's, uh, <laughs> let's all give a quick final thoughts on uh, Bruce Fenton and his exogenesis theory. And let's end this podcast. Go to After Hours. Listen, I'm downloading the audiobook tomorrow. I, wanna listen I was, well, was going to ask him if he read it himself. I hope so. Yeah, I know. He's got a his voice. <laughs> so if he read his own book. No, no for the no, audio for the book. Audio book. book. Yeah, for the oh, book. you listen to the audio. Yeah, because his hey, voice is really. Did you book? read your own book? <laughs> Have you? Uh, did you read what you wrote? <laughs> no, the uh, audio book. I thought it. It came out of my brain. Anyways, um, right. yeah, that's what I think. Any, what are your guys' thoughts? Yeah, I, I like the because like, I've always wondered of what happened, like what kickstarted us to be the species we are, because there is no like. Like people have speculated like, oh, it's because like our use of fire and like eating meat and the higher protein content allowed our brains to grow. Or you had the Terrence McKenna, which I wanted to ask him, but never to come up about like psychedelics and like expanding our mind is what actually made us like cult ape. cultural. And that's what gave rise to like societies. And that's why we became smarter. But I've, there is no real hard theory. And I've always wondered like, well, maybe... Maybe, maybe we just got like someone just implanted some DNA code. Changes every every time Zell turns into a stoned ape, he think he gives us a rethink. It's a it's a <laughs> weekly thing, almost daily actually. I, I can identify with that. Anyways, yeah. Dan, Dan, what do you think? Um, I I read the book, like I read the book, and um, it is a lot of uh mysterious things. There's a lot of there are a lot of loose ends to the the story of humanity. There, yeah. There's a bunch of stuff that we are working off. Again, we're like an, a million year old species, like hundreds of thousands of years have gone into our evolution and there's a whole bunch of blanks in that story and, you know, filling them in with whatever we can. Um, he, he provides a, a, a compelling narrative and a lot of evidence that, that people can go into and, and look for themselves and it helps kind of move the story along and it keeps things interesting. So, I mean, definitely check it out. Uh, you know, if you got it or, um, you know, listen to the audio book or read it, uh, it gives you a lot of avenues for, for theorizing. Definitely. Andrew. Well, this is probably the theory I like the most so far. Hey. That, was really, yeah, that was really entertaining, man. If Andrew I mean, doesn't say like this little fuck just wrote a book. Get him out of here. No, but he, you well, know. <laughs> he he had evidence for pretty almost every one of his claims. He had he had endless. Yeah, like it, it's and to me that that's all I've been asking for, man. Just give me something. Just something that you can like substantiate a little yeah. bit, even if it's not fully substantiable. It's yeah. uh, you can. I also think we should probably do a case file on this fucking Ian Stevenson guy in this re reincarnation. That's pretty fucking yeah, wild. Yeah, that's cool. I have I yeah, have heard about that nice guy and I, and I have read some stories about like yeah, how he has kids. 
He, he like f- tracks down stories of kids who like remember their murderer or remember where their body's buried or their past life's profession and that ends up checking out. Yeah, I'd compelling. be into, that'd be really cool to look into. Um, I'm just going to read this week's Patreons and uh, let's fucking end this baby up. If you want to get the show early, you want after hours, a bunch of bonus content, check out our Patreon, alien patreon.com slash five dollars a month. Patreon.com slash alien theorist podcast or you can find the link in the show notes. Cram Swanson. Craig Holston. Crams. Yeah, Cram Swanson. You heard that correctly. Okay. Uh, Craig Holston. George Harris. Anne Marie. Ben Kerr. Kyle. John Brooks. Robert Bainsbridge. No S. Bainbridge. Gwen Salas. Grant. Hodgins when did we record last July that's it no wait no two more actually wait Sam Williams three more Nick Chavez and Sage Nebula I might have double read but doesn't matter thank you for supporting the show we appreciate all your support anything else oh yes two things Join us for After Hours after the show on Patreon only second thing Mitra will come next week totally forgot about it um it's late. It's late, Mitra. As as, late as all other packages during the COVID crisis, it is late. Yeah. Let me see. Even if you were the Mitra winner, you're waiting for months at this point to get your stuff. Yeah. Uh, anyways, thanks, everyone. Keep those eyes on the skies. Peace. Peace.